2: It's the second time it's gone off. They never got home, they never got home, they never got home, those, those
3: guys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good yeah. luck. So he's almost
2: like having a second captain, in the team. second captain, first captain, whatever. I'm beginning to get the impression that the world's leading golfers are not that pushed about competing at the Olympic Games. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times second captain's podcast. I'm sorry, Murph, to drop that bombshell. Pick your jaw up off the floor. You look like Steve McLaren after Colbin Dick Thorson's winner the other night. <laughs>
0: uh, what on earth gives you that uh, crazy
2: it's just half Something about the way they're all withdrawing from the competition or hinting at... With- mm. the, re- the ones who haven't withdrawn yet are just waiting for the polite time yeah. to go and
0: do it. It's kind of like... Um, being being invited to a house party and then realising that no one, one by one all of the people that you <laughs> yes. respect or like are dropping out and you're just trying to pick a moment or trying to find an excuse to tell the mm. person throwing the house party that, yeah, no stuff for me anymore.
2: You're literally texting... Hey, Dave. Yeah, how you doing? You, you're going to a separate WhatsApp group and you go, yeah. um, you're, D- you're, Dave, you're, Johnny, uh, you boys head into this or? Yeah, this you, is what Jordan Speed's doing at the moment. He's just uh, texting the other main guys that are still left and finding out if they're still playing.
0: I, I hope that Rory McIlroy, Jordan Speed, and Jason Day have a separate WhatsApp group. You know, obviously there's the USPGA WhatsApp group. <laughs>
2: they're all on that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Boo Weekly's in this one, isn't he? Ugh. Gotta mind our P's and Q's around Boo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they what the question. hell is Craig Stadler still doing in this <laughs> whatever? <WhatsApp group?
2: laughs> two big retirements in Irish rugby we will talk about the uh, about the Golf Olympic uh, mess that's uh, going on at the moment with friend of the show Lawrence Stonegan but two big retirements in Irish rugby in the last week one of which got a lot of publicity in the last couple of days as tends to happen when a brilliant player has to call it quits early through injury as was the case with Luke Fitzgerald. There wasn't quite as much hoopla around the announcement that last Saturday's final test against South Africa was going to be the last match of Owen Redden's career. As he said himself after that game in Port Elizabeth, this is a guy who's had to work his bollocks off to make it to the top. Uh, Left Munster at a young age to go to Connacht, back to Munster... Where he again struggled to make an impression before a move to Wasps changed everything and led to him moving to Leinster and becoming a key part of Joe Schmidt's teams for club and country. There might have actually been as much hoopla, but I I was a little bit preoccupied with Euros build up at that stage. Uh, Either way, we are going to chat to Owen in a little bit, which I'm great looking forward to. Anyone you hear from who's played with him or coached, Schmidt seems to have a lot of time for Owen Redden's Rugby Intellect. So I'm looking forward to delving into that. Yeah. Scraping through his... And I don't know if you... Sc- chopping off his head and scraping into his rugby brain. Yeah, I don't know if you Serving remember... To our audience. <laughs> Sorry, I'll stop cutting across you with nonsense.
0: <laughs> also, it's quite a distressing image for the <laughs> listeners to try and... Grab their, you're not You're not going to open up and scoop some brains yeah, into no, the ears of some of I've our listeners. I've never seen
2: Hannibal, uh, one of the sequels to Silence of Lamps. Yeah. Do you know the scene in that with Ray Liotta sitting there yeah. having been lobotomized? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's how Owen Redden's going to look after I'm done with him. <laughs> Good God.
0: What kind of monster are uh, you?
2: I don't know. know. We've been yeah. doing a lot of podcasts recently. <laughs> <Leasing> <laughs> my mind.
0: That is true. That is true. I don't know if you remember um, Anthony Daly's autobiography. Dalo Dalo, yeah he was talking about having uh, met Joe Schmidt and uh, one of the things that Dalo was really struck by that Schmidt was talking about was the amount that he would delegate to the players that Schmidt would delegate to the players and Owen Redden was a key part of that that's right, yeah that uh, if you've got if you've got players empower them to be very tactically aware uh, contribute to the game plan and that that way you get buy-in from everyone. And Owen Redden was the name that Joe Schmidt used uh, uh, in that example as a guy who thinks his way around a rugby field, thinks his way through a rugby game better maybe than any of the, the players that, that Joe Schmidt has managed in, the last, in, the, in like the last number of years that he's been in Irish rugby. Owen's
2: going to pop into us very shortly right after we reflect just a little bit more, if you don't mind, on events in Nice on Monday night. In book 2 They're all pampered We haven't got leaders all night he sees is just blue. They're all just headphones
3: They don't communicate we can't get anything out of them That's why we're no good in book 2 They're all just headphones they don't kick on the pitch They don't communicate off the pitch They're all pampered Oh we're getting ready for Russia Good luck and then after that, we'll be building a team for Timbuktu. Timbuktu. How have England reacted to that equaliser? Perfectly. Um, no panic. Calm. Straight down. Continue dominating the game, playing and staying in Iceland's hearts. It's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. England, after four minutes, and they say,
0: Maggie Thatcher! Your guys took a hell of a beating!
3: Maggie Thatcher!
2: Your boys
3: took a hell of a beating! The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson,
2: who really... Thorson. Oh my oh word! My oh. Tell us... Talk us through that, Steve. I think we know what's happened. Oh, talk just us say... Thorson.
0: <laughs> he just cannot... <laughs>
2: I don't know. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> there it is. I mean, well. you, I mean, in the past, you used to have to read a match report in the following day's newspapers to find out what happened in the course of a football game. But now we can just audio, uh, uh, just hand it over to you as an audio package, and I think that that tells you pretty much all you need to know about the result, the reaction, the coverage in game. I, mean, I think we've covered all the bases there. Quite frankly,
2: that last sound effect was obviously good morning, there, Benedictson. That was just his commentary yeah. gone for. <laughs> he's it turned is, into it is whatever getting, that sound was. Yeah,
0: it is getting weird what's going on in Mark Horgan's head with that song, mm. though. Because, honestly, he's obsessed with that song. I mean, a day hardly goes by without him mentioning Eiffel 65 Blue. And I, I, well, the give video it, give of, it its full name. What? Blue Dabba D. Yeah. Yeah. He he literally everything he, everything in his life he traces back to Blue d by Eiffel
2: 65. Was it's was really worrying for me. There's uh, videos have emerged of our friend Goodmunder uh, doing his stuff. It's it's hard to believe that it's even more entertaining. With pictures, but he is not not surprisingly standing up, waiting for a full time whistle. Goes absolutely crazy. We've heard some of the commentary. Uh, the translation is brilliant. It's actually superb stuff. The English fans are booing, and he's he's like, "Boo all you want. We're staying in Paris." This kind of uh, triumphant stuff, while also completely incredulous. But we'll hear more from Goodmunder after they beat France, anyway. So let's move on from here. As you heard, there, Ken spent Tuesday's pod mostly just incredulously shouting the names of England players. He said it took him. It's going to take him a while to process the victory for Iceland. We have his more considered thoughts in today's Irish Times second captain's Euros podcast which is out now and also features a mega preview of all four quarterfinals. Now the near future for Leinster and Irish rugby got a bit trickier this week with the retirement of two of the country's top players one of whom delighted to say joins us in the studio Owen Redden how are you?
1: Hi guys thanks for having me in. When
2: the you know we read a lot of statements over the years a player retires the medal haul and the caps won and all that kind of stuff is is emailed out and to be honest there's been so much success that sometimes you can be a bit blasé looking at these things but i was struck reading your achievements heineken cup and a premiership title with wasps before you came back to win the two heineken cups with leinster two pro 12 titles 71 caps two six nations for ireland are you happy enough with that haul yeah i suppose i never never stopped to think about it um you
1: know, I think I, I suppose I've enjoyed being at places where we could like afford to compete for those trophies every year and aim that high. And I think that was probably the most enjoyable bit that I never was in a dressing room um, at any stage that felt, I suppose, that we, you know we had to aim less than winning something. So that was, you know, I think I'm, I was lucky to be in those dressing rooms and to be able to aim that high and and work that hard towards something um, to try and achieve that, and, and always. People moved on really quickly every year, and that was really the the culture of those teams to win something, move on to the next thing, and focus on the next possible silver that might be available. And um, that's probably what I enjoyed most. So it would be continuously chasing that.
2: Yeah, I so suppose if you're celebrating every title triumph for six months, <laughs> you're probably
1: not going to win another one. Yeah, I think you know the ones you lose seem to stick in your mind a bit longer. Um, you know, but definitely, I think. You know, I think f- even that was the first thing no one was like uh, we'd won. Um, we the first thing, the first year I was there, we'd won a Paragian Cup, and, and I'd never won anything before in my life at that stage. And I remember thinking, like, okay, there isn't anything wrong with me. Like, I'm not different because to that point, I literally had I don't think I'd ever won a medal at any stage, and I was 25. Um, and I still remember the relief on the pitch that day. And. But then again, the next day we were back in playing a Premiership game the week after, and I was kind of shocked at how quickly everyone had moved on. And um, it was a good lesson. And the same happened there when we won the Heineken Cup. Uh, you know, like within hours of winning it, like we were winning it, and people were warning me that when I got back there would be no talk of this um, after the, after the summer. So enjoy tonight, you know. So think um, Leinster definitely had the same
2: attitude in Ireland as well funny uh, you, you hear some, maybe some of the older school guys saying that professional rugby players don't enjoy it enough and you, that, that maybe you move on too quickly from the triumphs is there anything to that um, yeah I, I, I don't know I, I think I've
1: I suppose I've almost enjoyed the, the kind of the ups and downs through a season and, and the kind of you know the chasing of, of, of like the journey to winning it as much as, as, much as the day like there, there is an incredible amount of relief and sense of calm for a few days after you've done that Um, but I certainly enjoyed you know being able to 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 go after those those trophies and and, um, not have to kind of dampen down expectations and not lose a game and say well look that's where we're at at the moment you know to try and constantly be trying to find ways improving and working out where we are right now and if, if if we keep going the way we're going will we be in a position to win a final or not you know I think um you know, I definitely would look. If I had any regrets, it would probably be not that I'd moved on too quickly, but that I'd probably worried too much. You know, that we weren't good enough, or that I wasn't good enough, or I needed to do more here, and probably didn't enjoy the games as much as I I I might have if I had thought differently then again you know you mightn't have continued to try and improve as much if you had either but even
2: if you start even after you established yourself even after you started winning all these trophies you, you still worried right to the end of your days yeah right to the end like you go I would go through periods of like I remember after the first time I'd won the
1: Heineken Cup you know feeling very confident playing for a number of months um, and then slowly but surely you'd seep back into oh, I need to I need to do something I need to work on this I need to work on that and I think they're good emotions but it will be If I was doing it all again I'd be telling myself To let them go on Saturday morning And go out and enjoy it a bit more Um, You know It's something I tried to do For 15 minutes And I think I actually did For 15 minutes at the weekend Um, (laughs) And I was privileged enough To know I was going to have that um, Once I knew I was coming on And so I just tried to do it For those 15 minutes So I'll try and remember them (laughs) You finally relaxed In the last
2: (laughs) 15 minutes Of your career (laughs) Yeah uh,
1: Yeah exactly Yeah so um, But I think that would be The one thing I'd I'd be saying to people
2: Would be to You know Enjoy being good If you can you did uh, mention there that uh, the move to Was, the first trophy there. Can you take us back to that time in your career when you, you know, you'd come up at Munster, you'd gone to Connacht, come back, it, it wasn't really happening and you were faced with that maybe career-defining decision that some players actually, to be honest, some players, it's maybe an easier path. You just get through at the province that you start with and you become this superstar. Can you take us back that time when you had to decide that you were going to move to England?
1: Yeah, um, so I, I had been playing with, with Munster. I suppose I grew up, all I ever wanted to do was was play for Munster. You know, say if you had 10 friends, you know, every one of them were jumping over the wall to get into the game or, you know, working out who was getting on the you know, under 16 probables and possibles. And it was always this... Dream that you were surrounded by, and uh, and I always wanted to, to to play for Munster. So after two years in Connacht, which I which like I really enjoyed, and um, I kind of just when when it, when option came up to came to Munster, I just took it. Like I didn't even think twice, and uh, you know, come back it was probably a bit of a log jam Scrum Az at the time. Um, you know, there was Peter Stringer, Mike Prendergast, Frank Murphy, and Thomas O'Leary was was kind of coming up at that stage as well. Um, the first year I played a good few games and really enjoyed it and the second year I didn't get much opportunity at all. I think I might have played twice in the year and they might have been off the bench. And uh you know, Munster told me in January that there wasn't probably gonna be probably wasn't gonna be anything for me um the following year, which was devastating and I literally was thinking about, you know, which which accounting firm I'd be applying to to start um in <laughs> which was tough going and um but I always, you know, I used to, I suppose even the lowest times I'd, I'd probably just, you know, imagine somehow or right, the deal with it, I ended up like just imagining things going well or playing for Ireland even at that point. Um, because I really, you know, I couldn't believe how quickly it had turned from 12 months previously when I was enjoying my rugby and playing quite well to a point where I was possibly finishing um, mm. at such a young age. Um the year before I had been chatting to, to Warren Gatland at Wasps and he seemed incredibly keen and he had just moved on to uh, Wales so he had left uh, Wasps at that point but literally within two days um, Sean Edwards had given me a ring asked me to come over wanted me to play I thought he, he envisaged me being first choice which was bizarre given where I was at that present time in Munster and I said yes on the phone and he was he was like, "Well, you know, you might not have to think about the money." And then I was—I basically said, "I'd go no matter what.
2: I just wanted to go." Had some hard bargaining there. Yeah, also.
1: I kind of hung up and talking. Not sure what I've done here, but um, like they were European champions, and I was—and I had no job. And they're talking about me playing. I was, um, you know, pretty much blown away by it. And he'd seen me play in a game that. Um. I'd been hauled off on. I still remember being being uh, abused <laughs> by the coach after it. And he referenced this game and said, I liked the way you were um, getting to the breakdowns quickly. I think there's one or two things I can help you with passing wise, but there was something I saw that I really liked. I think it would work really well here. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is great. I can definitely play that well again because that was only all right. And um, then I went that summer that, and it was, uh, you know, it was. At that time, they were so far ahead of, of, of strength. They were probably doing the strength conditioning work that everyone does now, and that would have been you know eleven years ago. Uh, so I really benefited from all that and and um, had a great season.
2: What coach was that
1: abusing that you in was, again? Oh, that was Alan Gaffney. Uh, <laughs> um, for for just get mistakes. him off now were the words I heard coming down from the physio, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah. there was a repeated several times. I think so. Uh, I'm not sure why the physio told me this later, but he did. Um, <laughs> That definitely didn't help my confidence, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it was um, you know it was incredible a lot of luck involved, you know. And I think having setbacks at that age in your career, when you're in a specialist position, is quite helpful because you go back to the drawing board and literally, you know, you, you think about all the things you can do to help you to succeed or achieve what you want to, and it all comes back down to for me passing, you know, and, and you end up passing an insane amounts every day because you know that that's what will eventually get you through this tough time and then you come out of the tough time and and you get picked and you're playing well but you've all this block of work done Mm. in the meantime that stands to you forever you know and I think um, especially for nines and hookers I think you look at someone like Jerry Flannery as well who you know, again, would have had ups and downs early in his career and he comes out the other end with with, with a skill that is very durable and, 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 you know, will stand up in the toughest of environments or in really big games and, you know, how many big games did Ireland win because, you know, someone wins a line-out, even uh, in the first test there with Ireland, 14 men, Sean Cronin, it's a guy 17 yards off the back of a line-out, you know, and and you win the game and, uh, you know... He, how many hours of practice gone into that? You know, yeah. you never know, but but I think for guys in special positions, kickers, scrum halves, hookers, it's uh, those tough times can really make you.
2: You came back. Uh, You're obviously made then in Wasps in that way, uh, well, by the tough times and then by the confidence you gained at, at Wasps, winning titles there. You came back to Leinster after the first Heineken Cup to t- 2010, yep. Yep. which uh, again a, a good time, I guess, to come into a club and Johnny Sexton just established himself pretty quickly. I think you two set about. Certainly, he speaks glowingly of you uh, in in his book. At any time, he speaks about you, about the understanding that you had. How important was your understanding with Johnny Sexton to the success you ultimately had at Leinster? Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, when you're looking for,
1: for, I suppose, people talk about time and and how quick you can get the ball around the pitch or move the ball around the pitch, it does help. to to it was probably very good timing for us because I was coming in i had played an A game with Johnny when I was in Wasps against Scotland in the RDS and really enjoyed it. And like I think there is there was like where he likes to take the ball and how I like to pass the ball probably linked up quite well. He does take the ball quite flat, he attacks it um you know and that and the way I'd pass it might allow me to to, to, to get him into that space a bit quicker which 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 is good but like we got on quite well off the pitch as well, and at that time, I think he was, you know, coming just broken through in the Lancer team and was, um, you know, the main man, I suppose, for that season. And I was coming in with, you know, great respect for what he had just done on on, on a on a, on a on, in the Heineken Cup. So I think for a relationship for nine and ten, that quite works quite well. Sometimes you might have a nine who's who's been at a club for years and and the out half suddenly breaks through, and there's this kind of like there might be a bit of I don't know, there might be egos involved or or something like that but that never happened with me because, you know, with with Johnny and I because I suppose I had achieved something before I came and he he was probably respecting me from afar and I certainly respected him from afar when I came in and was, you know, waiting for him to almost run the show uh, which I think helps the dynamic, you know,
2: on the pitch. How do Leinster go about recapturing that sort of dynamic? I'm not talking about it 9 or 10 and 10, I just mean in, in general that the Leinster that you found back then compared to what's there now is there an easy route back um, yeah like rugby so dynamic and
1: like you know even when you're at your best it's very hard to build really strong firm foundations that are like impenetrable to, to outside forces you know it's um, now you see the, the size of the deals that, that um, French clubs are signing for, for their TV rights and you know you it's very hard to compete with that, and it makes it harder to achieve the success you want to achieve. I still think it's possible, uh, particularly with the squad Lens I have at the moment. And there's a certain amount of confidence. There's a certain amount of, um, you know, the coaching team were in their first year last year. We certainly improved, and we then we uh, improved massively uh, in terms of our finishing in the league, and and uh, you know probably the overall groundwork that's there that f- a, a springboard for what we can actually achieve now I think it's probably better than it was 12 months ago um, and how do you achieve that I suppose you know players and, and, and coaches together will, will I think you've a very you know open and dynamic group there now who probably will sit down together and and you know ha- have it, ha- hear each other out and I think discuss what, where they want to go and what, whether they want to be winning these trophies or not and I know the answer is obviously yes but you know, it's good to get that out of the way, and then establish how you're going to do it as a group, and what that means for you as a player every day, how you contribute to the group every day, how your actions like affect other people in the group. Um, you know, because it's the work you do in September, and October, and November that win you those trophies. You know, you need to be improving right throughout the year, and you know, you might find it hard to improve week to week when coaches are um, analysing you and correcting you from one Saturday to the next. But if you if you give a guy twelve months and say, or nine months and say, in nine months, can you be better at the four following things? And he takes responsibility for those things. Of course you can. You know, of course you can. And um, I think that's the kind of thing that that Leinster needs to do now. Um, and I think you know Leo is a very smart guy, a very reflective guy, always assessing himself, always working out what he can do better. And, and um, I think because of that he'll get there in terms of being a
2: top, top level coach. You, could, you probably could be describing yourself there in some ways because Johnny Sexton sa- uh, said of you, uh, Owen Redden, most regular roomy, great conversationalist, deep thinker, plays the markets and studying for a potential career in the world of finance but could be a great coach. Uh, you've gone, uh, you're going the finance route into aviation finance as opposed to coaching. Was there a temptation to stay in the rugby world? Uh, like, I suppose I didn't want to waste hours of college that I did <laughs> over the years <laughs> thinking, oh my God.
1: And, um, yeah, I don't know, like, I suppose rugby is scary in some ways and how much you could get lost in it or how much you could you could study a game or study an opposition. And um, I suppose in some ways I'd like to know if, if I can be happy and and achieve something in a different career. And if I can't, then I'll have to work my <laughs> way back. And if I can, you know, that'll be it, I suppose. Um kind of always felt I'd like to give something else a go at some stage and and it feels like the right time for me now Um, I'd like when I'm older to be able to think I did more than just one thing in terms of just from my own head Uh, I think it may it seems to make more sense to me to to, um, given the opportunities I have at the moment
2: uh, to take it You know, a lot of of people are very happy with one thing if they can do one thing really well and build on that you want to change it up
1: if I hadn't I suppose the opportunity I have now, I find quite motivating, intriguing, and I and I really want to go and do that. If that wasn't there, I think maybe I would be banging down doors or trying to go coaching and, and going after that one thing. So it's it's hard to say that that I'd be searching co- constantly away from rugby if if I didn't have this other opportunity. But I suppose this has been something I've been aware of, and it's something I've probably knocked on doors to try and bang them down a bit to get into, and then when it's come up, I, I've taken it. So it's probably more than that than than anything else you know I think if I didn't have this um, curiosity about this other role that I would be looking at trying to stay in rugby
2: I I think hearing from former teammates and even Joe Schmidt has talked about how he would sometimes bounce things off you uh, you know he'd give you some obscure pointers about to to look out for on the field and then look for feedback from you were you always quite an analytical kind of a player both self-analytical but also of what was going on strategically
1: Um, I think about how I think a lot you know I think that's that's pretty important and, and maybe that helps you kind of work out, you know, how to deal with ups and downs and, and, and getting picked or not getting picked and, and might give you a good vibe on how the squad is going on a tour or during the Six Nations. Um, you know, and then there's a rugby I suppose I've been exposed on a on a rugby leg point of view, like I've been exposed to lots of different coaches like Ian McGeeken and Sean Edwards from my coaches in in um, Wasps and then I came home and Michael Chekow was my coach and then Joe Schmidt took over and you know what I mean (laughs) some pretty big names there yeah and uh, you know some pretty pretty amazing um, rugby minds in terms of how to win and different ways of winning like one the, the trophies I won with Leinster were probably based on you know unbelievably exciting attack all out moves and things done at an extremely high pace and then the first trophy one at Wasps was you know, built around um, an incredible defensive system and, and the effect that an incredible defensive system on a certain day and a big day can have um, like for example you might play with that defence in December away to say in, maybe away to Newcastle for Wasps and the energy levels mightn't be there and they might have a great day and throw the ball around and get outside you a few times and score a few tries And but then you bring that to a final in front of 80,000 people and you ask guys to actually pass the ball four times you know, in the first play of the game and you're asking us to just actually tackle people harder than we have all, all year you can kind of see why maybe the, the skills that they're used to performing are actually going to be under pressure on that day, and the things like we are, where we're lined up to hit people, and, all, and, and that's all you got to do is hit them a bit harder. Yeah. It probably comes more easily. Um, and then you look at Connacht this year, and you look at the way they've played. And you know, I remember hearing specifically from their coaches after we played them that the way the weather was at that point, it was a horrendous day. But it was close to the end of the season. This was during the league that they felt that the weather was going to get better, obviously because May was coming, and they wanted to be able to play this way on the biggest days so they practiced it when it was when the weather wasn't good and then ultimately that's what they did and it showed it showed it on the final
2: Were you surprised how good they were towards the end of the season? No
1: um, I wasn't I thought they were very consistent and like the aspects of their game was, was like their ruck was extremely efficient obviously they look like they're playing extremely expansive rugby but for the detail that goes into say an Irish ruck and a Connacht ruck would be very very similar and and you can see how effective that is in, in terms of producing the results that knock on f- or that follow on from that. Um, I wasn't surprised at all. I think their defence is really good and it's totally underestimated because of their attack, really, not not because of any other reason, Just that, um, but their defence is quite aggressive, it's quite hard to play against as well. Um, and they had all the right ingredients going into the final and I, I wasn't surprised. I've preferred if we played better, you know, but even if we had played better I'd still think it would have been a tough game
2: Thankfully your career didn't have to end on that note because you went to South Africa as you said you really enjoyed that final test those last 15 minutes on the field compared to how it often ends for players um, maybe a victory would have probably topped it off but to be out there and to be plugging away at the South African line wasn't a bad way to go Yeah I think you know given given you never know how it's going to finish
1: and uh, I suppose I, I can consider myself today looking back you know, not unbelievably lucky because we might have sneaked a try, but but very humbled by all the messages I got. Uh, I was absolutely shocked, to be perfectly honest, um, about some of the things people said, and that was a really nice time for me, and my family, to have those few days and hear those things being said, particularly before a game that I was going to play in as my last game. Um, you know, because it was announced publicly, I think the
2: week leading up to that game was the week it, leading up to the yeah it, the it was announced tests.
1: publicly on a Thursday. Like and I hadn't any real inclination to. I wasn't sure whether I even would, and I like oh, I know that sounds crazy, but I, it didn't. You know, I had told um, lots of people very close to me, and you know, asked them. It's incredible actually how many people I told and asked them not to say anything, and it hadn't got out. So <laughs> it was um, obviously a bunch of trustworthy people, but I didn't really feel the need anymore. I, I, I with the with the Irish team management, I left it up to them really in terms of when they did but in hindsight I'm, I'm I'm very glad that it happened the way it did I, I would have missed out big time if, if I hadn't
2: had those few days Who was sending you messages? S- supporters? Uh, other sports yeah, people? Yeah like friends like you know friends. lots
1: of the players I've played with over the years were, were, were you know particularly thoughtful and, and listening to players I've played with you know um, saying something to the media or coaches I've had just things I wouldn't have thought uh, um, and being surprised by them and um, it gives you confidence I suppose in how because you you do carry yourself a certain way, um, throughout your career, and you know, you're never sure. I suppose if if you're never sure that you're doing things the right way, for example, like you know, I wouldn't be on Twitter, or or I wouldn't, I don't have Twitter or Facebook, or think little things like that. Where you're mm-hmm. like, am I, am I getting this right? Am I missing out on this? Mm-hmm, am mm-hmm. I would I be getting picked more? Or be getting picked less? Would I? All these crazy thoughts come into your head about. You know whether you are you talking too much in meetings, are you are you talking enough, are you training hard enough, are you not training? You, all these things, um, and I suppose the the messages I've received have probably given me a bit of confidence in in the way I approach things, and um, maybe something I'll try and continue with.
2: It makes sense because I suppose how often, particularly in a, in a dressing room, I, I know and fairness, rugby dressing rooms and Irish rugby dressing rooms are. Uh, pretty well known for, for the honesty of the critiquing. You know, you're, you, you, when you have to do it, you guys um, will have a go at each other and all the rest of it. But how often does anybody tell anyone else how great they are <laughs> and how much they like them until maybe until th- they're not going to see them anymore? Yeah, you know, it's probably something we could, all, <laughs> could, could be better work at, at a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, maybe at uh, uh, Beyond Sport, I think. Although maybe, it wouldn't uh, be as much crack, definitely <laughs> not.
1: Um, telling people how great we are, don't really do that, I suppose, yeah. But it is interesting because, you know, there are guys who definitely... It's definitely personalities who get a lot more out of that, you know, and mm. you know it can't be one size fits all. And you know what, you know me, maybe beating myself up might help me play better next week. But there's de- like by the nature of, you know, common sense, that doesn't apply to everyone in the dressing room. Some guys are going to prefer to be thinking differently that week. So I think it's important that we probably do uh, think about that.
2: I was struck afterward at the game you were speaking to the media, and you mentioned the fact that you. We're meeting some people for the first time or certainly getting to know them for the first time. Ulton Talan being one, this young player for Connacht that has has kind of taken the, the country by storm this year and that this was a- another nice part of the ending that you got to actually meet a few new people because any when, when I talk to and I've talked to obviously a lot of sports people who've retired over the years and everyone nearly says this, the same thing to a, a man and woman it's in team sports anyway that what you miss most is the camaraderie and all that it seems like you got three more weeks of that and there's not that many long tours these days in rugby but you, you got one last taste of that I did and um notice like Tiernan and Matt and Alton I suppose I
1: wouldn't have known that well and uh like yeah absolutely you know there there was a few weeks there where obviously Ulton and I weren't weren't involved in in the game and yeah and Matt as well I just thought it was uh it was great to get in, to meet and to get to know these guys you know and see how they take and I suppose i might have been looking at it from a different point of view in terms of I was probably more observant than usual I was just, because they just won a, a, a pro 12 and I was thinking God what these guys are you know they've got something going on here and, and even the way they all played or the catch that Tiernan took you know to do that in your f- first take on your first start probably gives you a little bit of an insight into what he's thinking <laughs> or how he's thinking about himself at the time um, it was an incredible catch yeah. and but anyway uh, even apart from the rugby they were joyed around the place and uh, like I really enjoyed that part of it, it as and knowing it was my last three weeks was great and I told all the lads like on the tour one by one nearly um, and it was nice to have those few minutes with people as well. Did you have any family around to
2: mark the occasion?
1: Yeah, my dad was, came for the full three weeks and my brother flew from New York, surprised me actually, which was Brilliant. Which absolutely blew me away, yeah. Um, so he gave me a ring about an hour beforehand because he wasn't going to make it to the hotel before the game. But uh, that was amazing, yeah, absolutely amazing. It Talk sounds like making yeah. it more memorable, you know. Was
2: it, it sounds like your dad has, you said in your statement that he's barely missed a minute of your rugby career, so he was going to be there regardless. Yeah,
1: he literally has barely missed a minute I think like there's a real real turning point for me about three seasons ago when Ireland played New Zealand um, here in the Aviva and nearly won what year was that was that 2013 2013, wasn't it Uh, yeah Yeah, 2013 so three years ago and uh, I'd been involved I'd started against Australia week before and you know it looked like I was going to be involved that week and Joe late in the week had decided he was going to you know grow the squad and give a few guys on the bench a chance had me involved so I was dropped it must have been as, as the game was on a sunday so it was as late as the wednesday I'd say when I found out and then I was like well will I go to will I go to um and this is when people around you really help will I go to Treviso or what you know will I stay around stay around the camp and I remember ringing my wife and she was you know she was you know Sometimes you know, extremely smart in terms of what what to do next. What, knowing me, and she was basically saying, "Go, go and play. You know, just go and play, and and don't don't hang around and dwell on not being picked." So I was like, "Fine, that's that sounds good to me. That's exactly what I was thinking." So um, rang my dad to tell him he was obviously got it. He was booked in um for the weekend, two tickets booked, um, in for him and his friend to come to the game, and then I rang him to say, "Look, I'm I'm going to Treviso. I'm going to be on the bench for Leinster because I can't change the team so late." And like literally, you know, he rings me the next night, and he's cancelled his trip to New Zealand <laughs> or to the New Zealand game, mm-hmm. and he's coming on my flight to watch me sit on the bench against Treviso mm-hmm. away. You That's very yeah. true. And I literally, I remember thinking, warming up, I was like, not, n- probably never feeling worse about a game, you know, and thinking, he's dad's come over here now. Come on, you know, you need to, you know, this this is you need to front up here a little bit, and uh, and it definitely made me, um, got me going definitely. And then I actually played pretty well played Northampton, or played for Scarlet, played against... And it was at the time when, I suppose, we'd have been competing at Leinster as well, myself and Bossy and Luke at the time. Um, played well, got picked again the following week, and then played against Northampton over there, and we won by 40 points. And I went on to have a, a, a pretty good year. And, like, you know, some sometimes you kind of look back and think him coming was probably a
2: huge... Uh, of a Philip, it, I guess. Just, it just,
1: yeah. I just got me, got me over the f- the initial disappointment. Allowed me to actually play well that weekend, which then kicks you off to the rest of your career. You know, I end up coming on against Italy after 20 minutes in the Aviva. We score, you know, we win by a lot of points. We win the we win the tournament, six and eight tournament a week later by a point. You know, and I all, I just kept on thinking back to that one day mm-hmm. when he's on the phone telling me, he's, and he like that game, missed that game for him <laughs> is is incredible you know, and that's the kind of
2: support he, he's always given me and um, there's a few days
1: like that that definitely stood out
2: yeah no, it's, uh, it's, it's brilliant It's brilliant talking to you as well. I should ask you about Luke Fitzgerald as well who also had to retire and yeah. I guess that's one of the one, what we're talking about he didn't necessarily get the look at times and yeah. I, I interviewed him a couple of times he always seemed to try to stay positive try to stay stay upbeat about his injuries when a lot of players might have even given up sooner I guess
1: yeah he was um, incredible around the place and I suppose in terms of his his dedication to whatever it was whether it was rehab or his training or um, getting better like to have around the place even when he wasn't playing when he was injured like he was kind of setting a bar for, for people in the gym or setting a bar for people doing extras and then playing with him was just you know what I mean, I think you know I heard some people say you haven't seen him at your best but to think that is kind of scary you know because uh, I remember even even the semi-final here uh, against Ulster he was phenomenal in mm. terms of his basic work you know ball in the air carries are like, real simple things but done incredibly incredibly well and he obviously had that game breaking ability and like and more importantly I think he's a brilliant guy he's a really really good um friend uh he's incredibly thoughtful for 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 people around him and and like checking in with people and uh I think you know he'll be sadly missed from that point of view um He's a, he's a top bloke he's a good friend and, and I'm, I'm sure you know knowing him he's, he's probably going to take this really well and and, 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 uh, and move on quickly And uh, but it is it is tough going and it's probably a bigger loss
2: uh, for Ireland and, and Leinster maybe than it is for Luke because I'm sure he'll be fine Absolutely well listen uh, a couple of big losses this week for Leinster and Ireland but we wish Luke well if he's listening we wish you well on in your new career in aviation finance thanks so much for popping into us Thanks us.
3: we Well, there were a lot of great moments. The performance against Italy was fantastic. Not winning the game against Sweden was actually a disappointment to me. I felt at the start of the tournament you needed to win a game to give yourself a really decent chance of qualifying, and it looked as if we'd spurned that. Combining that there with the crowd that we had, the supporters that we took, the humour that they uh, had throughout the tournament, uh, the stories coming back about um, one of those YouTube things of The numb on the Train, come, come. singing our um, father Martin to I think that was brilliant. And far more highs than lows, I have to say. From time to time I get the heart. is trying to swivel and oh, he's called down
1: he's is to the penalty spot and Ireland have a big chance inside one minute 15 seconds Wow Robbie Brady against Nubo Norris
3: Ireland lead in the off. What a start What a perfect start can turned the screw
0: oh, Greisman, and Greisman makes it two. Two goals in three minutes. Off goes Greisman again. Put in by Giroud. Griezmann brought well down. That's a penalty. Shane Duffy is a Griezmann's done the damage. He
1: felt like it was there for us today and our fans are unbelievable and we would love, love to go a bit further for them but um, we hope we made people proud because our fans are amazing and everyone back home is amazing and as I said we're just disappointed we couldn't see that.
2: Yes, indeed. So many great memories, so many highlights on and off the pitch. Summed up in that beautiful montage, Murph. No doubt, though, about the star of the show in there. I speak, of course, of horse, 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 horse. Yes, Yeah, a man dressed in horse (laughs) mask, calmly boots a ball through an open apartment window, despite the pressure of being cheered on by his buddies and with the added disadvantage of a pint or two, probably a can or two on board, Mm. more realistically.
0: You loved loved that. The first time you saw it, you loved it, and you continue to
2: love it. I continue to love it because I have a postscript. Okay, go on I saw a video on Balls.ie about what happened after the ball went through the window Nobody ever thinks about what happens after these videos are made Right, well Well,
0: I think we all have a fair idea, to be honest, but anyway Okay, so
2: the hijinks are over You've kicked the ball through the window while wearing a horse mask and having your cohorts chant Mm -hmm. horse, horse, horse You celebrate your success wildly for a minute or two You take the horse mask off and reveal yourself, which you should never do as a horseman
0: Break down the fourth wall there, we didn't need that
2: But what then? What do you think happened after that? Uh, What They repaired to the bar for celebratory drinks. (laughs) Probably, but not after knocking on the door and asking for their ball back. (laughs) That's what the lads did. A kind French lady said, no problem, fellas. A couple of lads hopped over the wall to retrieve it. And then, like a fearsome horde of white walkers, all the rest of the crowd spilled over the wall after them. Jammed into the yard of the apartment. Like Hundreds of these people just crawling like ants over the wall and landed themselves in this yard. Launched straight into their medley of three or four Irish chants. Literally a virus. <laughs> it was incredible. A few lads perched somewhat precariously on walls and so forth. But most of them kind of sitting there, standing there in a safe spot, singing away. And that, Murph, that sort of crack is why we're getting a medal. You hear about yeah,
0: this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're getting a medal. The From mayor, the mayor of Paris.
2: It's the medal of the city of Paris, according to keep Mayor yeah. Anne Hidalgo said the supporters have been exemplary in their sportsmanship and distinguished themselves by the atmosphere they created from the start of your 2016. So there uh, we go. Great stuff. Well done, fans.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not a medal for all of you. Uh, any of the fans that have been in Paris over the last couple of weeks, don't wait by the post, by, <laughs> you know, by the letterbox waiting for your medal to arrive. We're, I think we're just getting one medal. I mean, who, who should we, who are we sending as our emissary to horse. pick this up? Horse, in his horse mask. That would actually be quite funny. <laughs> I'll give you that. I will give you that on.
2: <laughs> Shane Larry and Jason Day. Well, who else? Rory McElroy, Charles Schwartzer, Louis Eusthazen, Adam Scott, Brandon Grace, Gray McDowell. All these great golfers will not be gracing the fairways in Rio 2016. Lawrence Donegan, were, maybe take us back to before this whole thing started unraveling. Uh, you're a golf man. When the sport was first, when it was first announced that the sport would be in the Olympic Games this year, were you ex- ever excited about the prospect?
3: Excited? Uh, I don't know. I've been to quite a lot of Olympics and I'm pretty kind of cynical about the whole thing. But when you actually get there, you know, beach volleyball, for instance, and you just think, oh, my God. But then you go to the beach volleyball and it's really quite fantastic, you know, and you think, oh, this is quite appropriate in its way. Um, some sports don't, don't fit. Uh, i tell you once, I'm kind of veering off topic here, but Athens in 2004, they brought in baseball and what happens in baseball, when a guy fouls the ball back and goes into the crowd, that's a keepsake, you know, it's a souvenir, it's one of the reasons you go to baseball. But what was happening in Greece, you had no clue what was going on, they were throwing the balls back, eventually the tannoy, the guy in the tannoy, had to say, listen, you can keep the balls. You know, my, my point being, you know, it's, you know, all these sports, you think, oh, that's kind of inappropriate, uh, but you know what, when you get there, it's actually quite fun in, in its way. And, and, and I felt a little bit that way about golf. I mean, I understand why they actually did it, why the IOC wanted golf in. It was all about Tiger Woods. Because when this idea was floated, when golf was accepted into the Olympics, Tiger was still at the peak of his powers. And they just and he was the most famous sportsman in the world. So they wanted him there. Uh, so the kind of golf, all the various golf bodies got together and pushed it. The IOC wanted Tiger. They wanted Tiger because they wanted the sponsors. You know, They wanted Nike. They wanted, you know, it was all, it was in kind of everybody's interest. But he, roll on six, seven years later, a Tiger's kind of essentially gone. And you you just kind of wonder. I mean, a Tiger's gone and virtually everybody who's anybody is is about to go. I was reading this morning, Jordan Spieth is now beginning to, to you know, harbour doubts. So I, I, to sum up your question on a long-winded answer, yeah, I was mildly excited. I didn't think it was fantastic. But, you know, I've been to tennis at the Olympics. And, again, tennis is a pretty similar golf to sport, sport in profile. And tennis works. Didn't work initially, and clearly golf isn't going to work initially.
2: So, what do you think has gone wrong then? Do you buy the Zika uh, story that they're all putting out?
3: Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's just utter nonsense. I mean, you, you know, is, are golfers more prone to you know, infection from any kind of virus than any other athletes from any well, other Well, the sport? argument
2: is that they're more exposed to it playing outdoors and playing in this reclaimed swamp.
3: Well, there is a lot of sports played outdoors at, at Olympics. I mean, you know, uh, okay, swimmers are less prone to it, but you know, they're walking around in Rio de Janeiro or wherever. And, you know, all the track and field people are out about the rowing, the sailing. I mean, come on, it's it's just ridiculous. Uh, and the ultimate, you know, the ultimate sign that it's ridiculous is that no women have pulled out, No women golfers have pulled out of the Olympics. It's clearly, you know, they've all looked at their schedules and. Um, Rory, I mean, you got a compliment for his, you know, his bravery. He, he was the first one to take the plunge, really, the first really big name to take the plunge, and they've all just followed in after him. It's a, it's a, it's a ruse. I don't believe a word of it. Uh, there is a separate issue to be uh, discussed here. You know, any individual um, professional athlete, you know, should you be, you know, if, personally, if I was a top class professional golfer, I'd not be very interested in. Propping up a corrupt sport and bureaucracy like the IOC, but I suppose that's a different argument. But I, the idea that it's something to do with uh, health or medical reasons is, is just a kind of insult to the people's intelligence. I think.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if the golfers are thinking <laughs> thinking that way. How, how is it a, if they think about sporting, you know, geopolitics or whatever it might be? But well, yeah,
3: I, I don't know. I, I mean, Rory McElroy is, you know, for a kid who confesses that. He didn't really go to school that much after the age of 14 or whatever. He's shown a real interest in in geopolitics. There was a tweet last week about Brexit and Donald Trump. It was pretty smart, you know, so <laughs> I wouldn't... Sorry, I would interrupt you there, but I wouldn't, you know, some of them are interested, I think. But anyway... Well,
2: no, I just wanted I to bring you back to... Yeah, no, you're fine. I wanted to bring you back to the point about uh, the, the, the cynicism that you and many of us have about the about the reasons being given here, the reason being given for these withdrawals. When Rory McElroy came out at. Of- my initial reaction, and it's, it's, it's the same now, is that Zika might well be a part of it. Another part of it is that the Olympics aren't going to mean a huge amount to somebody like Rory McIlroy, who has so much else going on in his sporting universe. And there's also the thorny issue of how bothered he is about representing Ireland. Uh, Shane Lowry, I mean, n- neither of those two other factors really apply to Lowry. We know that he's he bloody well wants to represent Ireland when possible. Uh, an Olympic gold medal at this stage of his career would be something I'd imagine that he'd be quite interested in. So in the case of Lowry even, would you would you believe him that it's about the Zika virus? He says he's about to try and start a new family. He just got married. Uh,
3: well, I, I mean, I'm not on here to, you know, to accuse Shane Lowry of pulling the wool over my eyes. Um, I, I mean, who, who knows? I don't know what his motivations are, but... but you know, Shane Lowry, what means more to Shane Lowry right now? A major championship or an Olympic gold medal? And, you know, that's part of the schedule is, you know, if he's off to the Olympics, it's very tight with the PGA championship coming up. He might be looking at that. Again, I'm not saying he is, but, you know, a lot of them are probably looking at that. A lot of these top guys are looking at that and saying, well, what is worth more to me right now? These A major championship or an Olympic gold? And with the PGA championship coming around, I mean, Shane Lowry must think, Well, he is now. He's one of the top, you know, 15, 20 golfers in the world, you know. So maybe he's making that kind of calculation. Again, I'm not saying that he is, but you know, you have to factor in that as well. And just quickly, this week is a, essentially, there's also a problem with the Olympics, the format of the Olympic golf competition. It's a 72-hole stroke play event. Essentially, it's a, a world golf championship event. There's one of those on this week at Firestone in Akron. And I swear to goodness, I am a golf fanatic, a golf nerd, and I'm utterly bored by the idea of this tournament this week. And you know, I'm sure a lot of the golfers who are going, although a lot of them aren't going, but a lot of them who are going are kind of bored with what's you know what they're about to do for the rest of the week. But there's a, is an issue with the Olympic, the format of Olympic golf. It doesn't terribly excite, you, you know, guys. I mean, Shane Lowry is a very, I'm sure, is a very patriotic guy, but wouldn't it have been better. He might have been more inclined to go if it was him and Rory going off to play in some team event. You know, he might have been more of motivated to play in some different format, a team event. You know, he didn't want to let down his mates, didn't want to let down his country. But as the way the format is right now, you're just playing as an individual. It, it really is just about just another event on, on the calendar. And given that there's a, PG, uh, there's a major championship right after the Olympics, then uh, or, you know, in and around the Olympics, then, you know, you've got to make a choice. And I think that's what they're doing.
0: Can you understand the anger of the non-golf Olympians? I mean, we've had a few uh, boxers over here uh decrying, well Rory in particular's decision Katie Taylor, another one bites to dust she tweets after, uh, alongside a photograph of Jason Day's statement I wonder what excuse the golfers would have met if there was no virus. Uh What, w- well, what would you say to these non-golfer Olympians?
3: Uh, well, well you know what you know let Rory McIlroy do what he wants, you know it's not I mean by all means tweet your disapproval but you know he has to make decisions for himself Um that he feels are good for himself, you know, and if he's k- kind of, you know, fudging the the actual motivations, then you know that's up to him. You can judge his motivations, but you know what, uh, the boxers should just worry about their own business and, and let these guys get on um, and do what they want. You know, we can all we can all pass judgment on their motivations and laugh at the the kind of the logic that they're floating out there. But uh, as I say, you know, personally, I, I'm not particularly inclined to prop up uh, the IOC, and that's you know. But, but you know that's essentially what they're doing. It's so a, yeah. To answer it, well, I'm just laughing. Boxes are, are an altogether tougher breed than professional golfers, aren't they? <laughs>
2: it does. Um, it, it does matter to some golfers, I'm sure. Though, uh, well, a lot of a lot of the ones who haven't pulled out yet, for example, Potter Carrington heard him on off the ball last night. He's already booked his his tickets and he's booked his family to go over as well. So he's not worried at all about the yeah. virus. Uh-huh. And the point that he was making was that for him now. I suppose he's won his majors. Maybe he's being realistic enough to know he's p- unlikely to to win another one. And he thinks that winning an Olympic gold medal would be huge, partly because he's always followed the Olympics, but also because it would open it would open himself up to the non golf world. You know, he could go to China and he'd actually be introducing himself as an Olympic champion rather than yeah. uh, rather than uh, three time major winner. So. I don't know. Look, I'm as cynical as the next person about this sport being in there, but I, s- I suppose if Potter Carrington was strolling down a fairway on the 18th, the 72nd hole of the tournament with a chance at a gold medal, I might be kind of excited. Would you? Uh,
3: well, absolutely. But he, again, you got to remember, you make the point. He's at a different stage of his career now. You know, he's kind of been there, done that, and this is just, uh, you know, this is just something new for him. Uh, and oh, whoop, whoop, I mean, it's great, you know, it's come at the kind of tail end of his uh, you know, career as a top, top flight guy. And um, so great, you know, and, and uh, you know, you would think that, you know, Harrington's such a kind of quirky bloke. <laughs> you kind of wonder, you know, if he was the number one in the world, he would have gone. There's no doubt. I just think, you know, he is one of these guys who is interesting, who does have a, you know, a hinterland uh, who is interested in other things. And uh, you suspect if he was number one or number a 1,001 and we had the chance to go to the Olympics, he would have gone. But uh so there is that. So he's a kind of curious case. But, you know, in terms of him going and his explanation for him going, it, it is a, you know, a, a kind of late a late career surprise for him. So, you know, good on him. But uh, again, I come back to the point uh, we can all laugh at the, the logic that the top guys are using but uh, you know if that, they've got to make you know, choices that are you know good for them
2: yeah and we're still waiting for the qualifying process to end it goes on until after the British yep. Open so plenty of time for Spieth and the others to potentially pull out of this one Lawrence listen always, uh, always great to talk to you thanks so much
3: okay all the best on ticket in
1: mcdevitt
3: world war. the murph and Mackey for most welcome irishman of the year goes to owen mcdevitt owen owen. owen owen Owen, mcdevitt from ireland's second captain show all
0: up in the interweb owen mcdevitt world war. second captains those guys are like those guys are like family to me man this is luck the coolest song i ever heard in my whole life Owen McDevitt. All of you said I wouldn't make Stop it. Stop talking about Tom Finney. He said I was a loser.
3: This guy is a bit of a turkey. <laughs>
0: Alright. He said I was a fucking soccer. But look at me now. All up in the interweb. Owen McDevitt. World, world. War. The new World Federation of the Championship.
2: Owen oh, yeah. Owen McDevitt. If you say, for example, the Barcelona team you worked at... Is it fair to say anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Is the tennis comparison fair enough?
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, if you go back to 1988, Mm -hmm. uh, tennis had been played at the first, whatever it was. Only I could, Six or eight uh, Olympic Games. But after 1924 in Paris, uh, it didn't reappear again until 1988. And uh, even at that, I think it was only two of the top ten players mm. in 1988 actually showed up. M- Miloslav Mečik won uh, gold for Czechoslovakia in 1988. Tim Mayotte uh, silver. Stefan Edberg and Brad Gilbert won bronze. Okay. So we—I ha- have actually heard. I, mean, of I those know those two. guys. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Rosse of Switzerland won gold in 1992 in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jordi Arese from Spain. Mm. I mean, these are not the behemoths of the tennis world that we remember watching no. uh, around the late 80s and early 90s. So it is a bit of a slow burn. The, the problem that golf has is that it's only signed up, it's only in the Olympics for this Olympics and the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. But so
2: just to finish the tennis point, it, uh, we say it's a slow burn, has it burned? I mean, it, has it got to a point that everyone's interested in? I uh, obviously remember the Andy Murray win in the uh, against Roger Federer. Yeah. But that was a very specific sort of dynamic at play there. It was before Murray had won any of his majors. For him, that was a grand slam yeah, event, essentially.
0: Nadal won it in 2008 as well, and it was and a huge deal for Nadal, you know? So, um, yeah, sorry. So and the point I was going to make about, about about golf is that, you know, if, if you've got a long-term commitment to it, then, you know, players will... Players understand that it's on the roster, so you're, you're going to eventually start caring about it. Whereas if it's there for two years, for for this year and for 2020 maybe you're inclined to say well this is you know it's going to get booted out anyway so what's the point um, so I mean I, 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 to be honest I would be pretty pessimistic about the chances of golf surviving in the Olympics past 2020 if this is
2: past 2016 if it, it goes particularly badly yeah. but I'm sure some players will, will, will go as and you know
0: I, I mean they're beyond the, the upper echelons that we're talking about here the McElroy Speeds uh Already wh- whispers about speed. Uh Maybe there's another tier below that top tier of golfers who kind of like the sound of this. That right? Okay, there's a lot of the best players are t- being taken out of this. This is still something that's going to be the first line of my obituary. Maybe let's sh- let you
2: know. Let's show up and uh, let's go for it. Why doesn't Tyre just do it? Go on, Lawrence is talking. About that's why they want it. They want them there in the first place. No, it might get down to him in the rankings. Hmm. And I'm sure, okay, sure he has no ability to (laughs) stand up to four rounds of golf. Yeah,
0: I I, I don't think Tiger is in any any real position to make a late play for this one.
2: Monday's podcast will be dominated by the weekend's championship matches in football and hurling. What have you got? Uh,
0: Yeah, well, actually loads of games, 10 games in total. Uh, I'm going to do it chronologically uh, on rather than in... Order of importance, if that's alright? Sure. That's why I'm starting with Lee Armand, the football qualifiers at 3pm mm-hmm. on Saturday in Port Leash. Sligo Leitrim in Sligo at 6 o'clock on Saturday as well, and the football qualifiers. But four hurling qualifiers, Wexford Offley, Westmead, Limerick, Clare Leash, and the pick of the bunch, Cork against Dublin, live on Sky Sports at 7 o'clock. And then there's Donegal Cavan, the Ulster semi-final replay, also at 7 o'clock on Saturday. So, a few pretty good games, good games in there. And then on Sunday, Munster football final, Kerry against Tip, 2pm live on RTÉ. Tyrone Cavan in Clonus at 4pm, not on television. And the Leinster hurling final goal at Kilkenny, live on RTÉ Sports. So, uh, yeah, 10 games and some pretty good ones. So we're going to have a, a big show on Monday. Pretty much all GA. I mean, can, can, can I make that sort of bold promise to our listeners, Owen? There'll be a lot of GAA. There's going to be quite a bunch of... I'm going to
2: say if Iceland knock France out, they're going to make it into the Euros podcast and the non-Euros <laughs> podcast. So don't make too bold a claim right yeah, now. Yeah, we're
0: actually going to be broadcasting in Icelandic on well, Monday. Are they going to uh, say in
2: Iceland? No, no. a quick t- trip over to Reykjavik.
0: I think if you can't beat him, join him. So Gudmundur ben- Benediksen and you will be co-hosting the show on
2: Monday. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed today's show. What a great guy Owen Redden was. He, um, I think Redden made seemed to maintain a lowish profile during his career. You'd obviously see him doing loads of press conferences. He was perfect for that because he would always speak well without revealing a huge amount which is essentially the job of a player Mm. in that situation but it was nice to actually get the chance to delve into some of his worries and doubts and his smart thoughts about how the game is played. I just hope he can reattach his Cranium correctly thereafter. I ripped it right off, and the brain scoop, the own McDevitt there. brain scoop. He looked a bit shaky leaving. Was he? You think he was okay though? Wasn't he? <laughs> the sedatives weren't too mm. heavy that I oh, <laughs> dropped this gag now. Thanks, Murph. <laughs> our Euros podcast quarterfinal preview show is out now, so do have a listen to that. That's a great stuff there. Get you excited for the next few days. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Owen Thanks for listening. and <laughs> What it? been- is that? That's the second time
3: it's
2: gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys.